morning, and we're going to do as you are as as you know you're probably familiar. We're going to be looking at the last last verses in um, John 11, starting at verse 38 and going through verse 57. We're going to do a little um, summary of where we've been in the last few weeks. We've been you're probably glad to see we're getting out of John 11 finally. This is our last little bit in John 11. I could stay in John 11 probably forever. So. Maybe you're lucky that I only kept it to three weeks. I don't know. But um, we've talked about signs. I've put a couple of different monikers there down on under context. We've talked about signs. We've talked about the I am statements in John's gospel. We've talked about timing and about Jesus' emotions. So let's just look first of all at, um, and just to put chapter 11 within context, chapter 11 is sort of at one of the very hinge points of the gospel. It's about halfway through. And we talked, um, we talked a few weeks ago about one of the arbitrary, somewhat arbitrary and yet rooted explanations and designations for the structure of John's gospel. And we called it, does anybody remember what we called it? Book of Signs. Book of Signs. And what was the other one? Book of Glory. Yeah. Book of Glory. Does anybody remember why we call it the Book of Signs? Yes, and why are the miracles called signs in John's gospel? Yeah, they're not just, it's not just a wow, that was amazing, he just healed this man, or wow, he just helped him see again, the blind man can now see, or the paralyzed man is now, or he changed water into wine, wow, it's not just about the wow factor, he must be someone really powerful, it's really also about pointing to who Jesus is. Um, those signs are just like a road sign that point those who see the miracles to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is, and that's in preparation for wh- what he's about to do when he goes to the cross. And in the second half of the book of, the book of John, of the Gospel of John, you see that um, time slows down. So chapters 1 through 11 deal with kind of the book of signs, and chapters 12 through 21, um, so this is about three years' time, because we're looking at all of Jesus' ministry there. Even at his birth, if you start with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God in John 1.1. 1, 1. So this is a longer bit of time, 11 chapters for three years. And then what happens in chapter 12 is we're getting closer to Passion Week. And it, it, it's almost as though these chapters, um, John, in those chapters, John slows down. Time stops, time slows down as he begins to narrate and tell about Jesus' death and resurrection. And he's drawing our attention to that. Um, So this is almost one week, a little bit more. Any questions about that? About those designations and the relationship between them? Oh, why, wait, why is the second one called the Book of Glory? Does anybody remember? We'll talk a lot more about this for a long time because we're entering into the book of glory. Next week we'll be in chapter, or in two weeks we'll be in chapter 12. So we're going to start looking at um, the events leading immediately up to Jesus' death. And Jesus in the upper room is in chapter 13 through 17. Pretty long. It's a long time in the upper room. Um, So why would it be called the book of glory? Does anybody have any ideas? Do you remember at all? It is about the resurrection, and one of the things, too, is that in John's gospel, 
they always, he always talks about the low point of what we would call the low point of Jesus' life. I mean, if you were talking about two mountains in a valley, the low point would definitely be the cross, right? Um, especially if you believed that there was no resurrection, then you'd look at that cross and you'd say, wow, couldn't get any worse than that. That's so depressing. You know, his, his followers believed in him, believed that he was the Messiah, and then he goes and he dies on a cross? How terrible. Uh, he dies the death of a slave. He dies the death of a rebel to Rome. He dies a cursed death. Well, John's gospel, John has had a lot of time to think about this, and he sees that this down is in fact an up, that this low point is in fact a high point, and he uses language of exaltation to describe Jesus' cross. He talks about the hour of Jesus' glorification, and when he talks that way, there is in that sense, even in the sense of glorifying or exalting, is there a direction to that? Is that up or down? Up. We exalt Jesus. We glorify him when we worship him on Sunday mornings. And what you see is that John is using that same language to describe the event of the cross, that there Jesus is being exalted and lifted up and glorified. And in fact, there is in one sense that direction. He's on the cross and he is raised up. And he is above the heads of those women who were standing at the foot of the cross. They had to look up to see him and he was exalted and glorified. So there's that strange irony that throughout scripture, glory and God's glory is used to describe his <coughs> majesty and the beauty and the holiness of God and all these visions of Yahweh that you see, you know, heaven opened and Isaiah sees, da -da 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 -da. he sees the altar, he sees the archangels, he sees all of these glorious things and glory is used throughout scripture to describe the holiness and the majesty of God. And how amazing that John is then saying, well, this is even more glorious, that God in all his glory deigned to become one of us, to be born as a baby in Bethlehem, and then to go so low as to die on a cross. And at which point that lowness, the humility of God himself is in fact his glory. Sorry, I get chills when I start talking about that. Any questions about that? Deborah, it doesn't make any sense. What are you talking about? Okay. Okay. Um, next thing I have down there are the I am statements. Oh, wait. Signs. The signs lead, and they, there are seven signs that we can identify in John's gospel. Some argue about which ones are which. And they kind of go upward into this pinnacle point by John 11. We have the most amazing sign ever. And we're going to get to read it today. And that sign is the raising of Lazarus. That last and final sign, that seventh sign that glorious sign that points to who Jesus is. And that sign accompanies an I am statement, which we looked at last week. Does anybody remember what do the I am statements, what do, what do I mean when I say that? It's okay if you don't know. I'm not looking either, so. Oh, whoops, I did it wrong. Well, first of all, does anybody know what I am mean, means or meant for the Hebrews? Well, it was the name for God. Yes. Yes, exactly, exactly. So in, in, um, in Exodus, when Moses was reluctant to go to back, to the, back to Egypt 
and to tell Pharaoh to let God's people go, and even to get the Israelites to follow him, he said, well, Lord, you know, the Lord told him to go. And he said, well, what am I going to tell them? Who am I? He was very reluctant to go, and he keeps coming up with all these excuses. But one thing he does say is, Lord, who am I going to say is sending me? And the Lord reveals his name to Moses. And I think of this a lot with, and I said this a little bit last week, so forgive me for repeating myself, but I think of this a lot, especially as I'm getting used to um, being in Birmingham and being in a little bit of a different culture than what I'm used to. And one of the hurdles for me has been names. Um, And I've noticed this when I go to the hospital to visit someone. We might have one name that we always call the person by, but they're not listed under that name because it's not their birth name. It's not their given name. It's their cold by name. And so you always have to ask someone, um, if you see their given name, you have to say, okay, well, now what do people call you? Or, and I loved finding all of the combinations of what people are called. And, and there's this sense of privilege and intimacy of relationship when someone says, oh, my name is so-and-so, but you can call me. Isn't it? When you have a friend, suddenly there's this, well, first of all, there's that formal designation, Mr., Mrs., and, um, and this is also a cultural barrier for me that I've always grown up with informal usage, which is not proper. <laughs> and yet that um, there is that sense when you go from the formal usage to the informal that there's an intimacy of relationship. And so it seems like presuming when I use first names when I ought not to. And that's one of the hard lessons I've had to learn. Oh, gosh, I don't mean to be, you know, presuming. But um, one of the things that I love about that is there Yahweh is at the burning bush with Moses. And he gives him his call by name. You can call me. I am. You can call on me. This is my name. Call on me. You can tell them to call on me. And so his name, I am, is a verb. It's the Hebrew verb to be, and there's this sense of eternity within it. It's in the present, I am. And yet there's this sense of um, I am and I was and I will be forever and ever. Um, So there's that sense of God's eternity, his eternal nature. Also within that, he qualifies that when he says, I am, he says, I am, and I, I will, I am the Lord, merciful and compassionate, gracious. That's exactly what he says to Moses right after he gives him his name. So we see that quality of mercy even within God's very character, even revealed by his name. And so um, this name, this Hebrew name, this uh, name in Hebrew for God was used by the Israelites, and you see it throughout um, the Old Testament. And does anybody know, how did the, did they use this name to talk about God, or did they not? No, yeah, why didn't they? They never said his name. They didn't, why not? Because they would be damned. Yeah, they they believed, well, and we don't have any circumstance, we don't see anywhere where God strikes someone down for using his name, which is interesting. So did they come up with, was there reverence, their extreme reverence for his name, something that God dictated, because if it is, we don't see it in Scripture. But we know that it came about, and they were so um, afraid to say God's name because they didn't want to blaspheme. They didn't want to. He's so holy and so transcendent that they, they didn't want to presume on using his name, which is, which is wonderful in a way. Um, and so even pronouncing the name of God by the time of Jesus was seen to be blasphemy. So here Jesus comes in saying, I am. And we see it in John chapter 8. I think it's 59. 8 verse 59. Does anybody have it? 
um, John chapter 8, and I think it's verse 59, or no, 58. Before Abraham was, I am most assuredly. That's exactly it. What do you have, Mildred? That's what I am. Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I like your translation, most assuredly. <laughs> truly, truly is how that's often translated. But I like that translation because we get so used to hearing truly, truly that I need sometimes to hear most assuredly. They mean somewhat the same thing, but it's good to have a little shake up sometimes. Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And what happens next? Do you see what happens next in the next verse? That's, that's the proper punishment for blasphemy in the, in the Old Testament law. You say the name of God and you're going to be. That's it. You, you must be expunged from the people of Israel because you're presuming. So, or not for the name of God. It doesn't say that in scripture, but they added that to it. So there Jesus is saying the name of God. He says, I am, when he sa- and there in chapter 8. And then also, all throughout John's gospel, he has these statements. There are seven I am statements. Can anybody think of any of them off the top of your head? This is, I mean, I, you know I don't keep track. So there are no gold stars and there are no demerits in, in my Bible study world. I wrote them down last week. Ooh, go Barbara. The bread of life, the light of the world, yeah. the gate or the door, mm-hmm. the good shepherd, the resurrection of life, and the way, think, and life. Truth. The way, the, the truth, truth, and the life. That's right. And he said that. I'm not wrong. I know, I know, but when you're writing, when you're reading something too, it doesn't, anyone else, is there any other one? The vine. The vine. So that's chapter 15. Chapter 14 and 15, those ones are coming up. Jesus says those two ones in the upper room with the disciples. And do you see how with the, does anybody remember what the direct object is in grammar? I am the. Yeah, it's the object that follows the verb. I was one of those um, nerds in school who really enjoyed diagramming sentences. Go figure. Oh, in chapter eight, when he says before Abraham was, I am. Yeah, but there is no, if you say I am, there is no objective case. Ooh, tell me more about that, because my grammar's obviously failing. Yeah, tell me more. You've got to be or seem or whatever. Or is it in opposition? Apposition, when you have I am the this, because you could reverse it. Yeah. Yeah, and you could say. Yeah, that's why so many people say, when they say it's me, it's wrong, it's it, it is I. It is I, that's right. Oh, that's good. So Thank you. So it, you could actually say the vine is Jesus. Like you said, yeah. yeah, the way, the truth, and the life is Jesus Christ. Yeah. The resurrection and the life is Jesus Christ. Sorry, I'm getting chills. That's great. Thank you, Charlotte, for sharing that with us. So you have this sense in which Jesus is revealing by saying that he's revealing his identity. He's revealing more information about God to the people around him and about himself and his relationship um, to God, that he and the Father are one. Um, so we saw, yes, so any, any questions about that before we move on to timing? Because we did see in last week's verses that Jesus says this when he's challenging Martha. Remember, Martha comes out and she challenges him, why weren't you here? When, you know, why weren't you here to heal my brother? And Jesus challenges her back and they kind of have this intellectual discourse and he's pushing her to a deeper understanding of faith and to a, uh, a more um, 
a more extreme hope in the resurrection. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life, meaning that he not only um, believes in the resurrection, but it is through him. He is the one who bestows life, just like God the Father as a creator, that Jesus Christ himself has the power to bestow life upon those who believe in him and resurrection upon those who believe in him. Um, And so he's challenging her. She makes this deeper profession of faith. And we saw also last week that Mary, too, um, encounters Jesus outside of the town. And does anybody remember the difference between the way Mary and Martha encounter Jesus? Yeah, Mary falls down at his feet. She's always falling at his feet. And she's weeping. And how does he respond to her weeping? He weeps. And then, so we see his emotions. Well, first of all, the timing. Remember, he waited. At the beginning of chapter 11, we saw that he waited where he was. And that that helps us understand a little bit more. Why does Jesus tarry when we need him? Why did he tarry when Mary and Martha and Lazarus needed him? Um, And it's a hard answer, uh, question to answer, and yet we see it in the text. He's waiting um, for the right timing. Because God's timing is always different than our timing. We don't see enough of the big picture to see that his timing is sovereign. And, and sometimes we don't hear the answer that we want to hear when we want to hear it. Because his timing is perfect and beyond, uh, it's beyond our understanding of what, what his timing is like and why his timing is the way it is. So he waits for the right time to come back to Bethany. And at, when he gets there, it's been four days. Um, and he encounters the women. He encounters their concerns. He also is emotive. Did you see that? He weeps. And what else? We see him weeping. And why do you think he's weeping? Yes, exactly. He's we- Yeah, I know. It's right in there. And um, so many commentators, it's terrible because they say, oh, he's weeping because of their lack of faith, because they're weeping, because he died, and he is weeping because they're faithless, the people there don't believe in him and don't believe that he is the resurrection and the life. No, there is a much simpler explanation. He's, he's weeping because death is not the way it's supposed to be, and he loved Lazarus, and Lazarus has died. Um, he's weeping because death is not the, not the way it's supposed to be. Um, and he doesn't just weep, but what else does he do? Does anybody remember what these words, there are some two words in verse 33 and verse 38. We'll see it again when we read again today. Um, Let me turn back. Hold on. Yes. Does anybody else have their Bible saying something different than that? Yeah, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Yep, I have deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Anybody else have different words for those two? They're troublesome words because no one knows how to translate them. Because they have, in the original language, they have the image of anger. Deeply moved, it's snorted with anger like a horse. And troubled, talks about a horse's hooves in water, stirring up the water. There's, you know, that white foam in the water. But there is this disturbance within Jesus' own spirit. He is angry. Why is he angry? Any ideas? Because they don't have the faith. That's what some people say, and they say that in a lot of commentators say that. I have a, I, I don't think, I think he knows, does he get angry with Martha when she doesn't have the faith earlier? No, he challenges her, but he's not rebuking her in a really harsh way, you know, the way, he's, he seems agitated, he seems angry, 
Does anybody think, what else, why else would he be angry at this moment? He's sorrowful. Yeah. It's the whole anger and sin. The wages of sin is death. Mm-hmm. And, he's, and you're seeing what it's wrought. Exactly. You know, and it, we see in the epistles that sin, when it, when it um, matures, brings forth death. Or what is the verse from Paul that, that it's um, sin, uh, and the image is one of pregnancy, gives birth to death. That there's this relationship between sin and death, and that the Holy One, the Holy God of the, of, um, who is sovereign over all, of course, is angry at sin, and I would even say here he's focusing his anger on death, and that specifically death is that instrument of the devil, and it's not the way it's supposed to be. It entered into our existence as human beings when Adam and Eve sinned, and when sin, which I've been describing recently as a genetic mutation, a spiritual genetic mutation, so I find that helpful to think, well, how does... Adam and Eve's sin relate to us. You know, I wouldn't have taken that apple, but the truth is that each one of us would have taken the forbidden fruit and eaten it. And we do it over and over and over again. There is this sense of a spiritual genetic mutation of sin within our lives. And that leads to death. Each one of us will one day die, as much as we'd like to pretend that we won't. We, we know that we will one day die, and our death looms in our lives unless we live um, by faith in Jesus. And so what we see here is Jesus' pronouncement, essentially, and God's prona- pronouncement on death through Jesus. So um, the de- it, it, there's this wonderful quote, and I put it on the handout from last week, which is on the website if you want to see it. Um, that, and it's from B.B. Warfield, who's quoting John Calvin. And I find that Calvin's interpretation of this verse and this, these troubled emotions, this anger in this verse of Jesus, the anger of Jesus, his interpretation, I think, is most apt. And you tell me what you think. He, he says, uh, Calvin and Warfield say that Jesus is angry not because of their lack of faith. He's angry because death has seemed to have had its sway. The devil seems to be in control here, and he's not about to let it happen. And this is where I say that Jesus as the Lord of life in direct proximity with this death, I think of it as being magnetic poles, opposite poles. He is just repelled by it, and he hates it. Jesus hates death, which is great news for us. And so then we're going to see in our passage today what he does. But I'll just leave you with this word before we read that Calvin and Warfield saw Jesus here as a champion preparing for battle. He's beating his chest. He's about to go and raise Lazarus from the dead. And he is angry. He is angry at death, that death has taken his friend because that's not the way it's supposed to be. So what's beautiful about that is that for us in our sorrow and our grief at death, in our little, the little deaths in our life, um, in our sin, with sin and with death, and then with the suffering in our world that comes about through sin indirectly, what we see is that God is with us, Jesus is with us, there is that sorrow um, and that suffering, he suffers with us in that, he weeps with us, he's compassionate in that sense. Um, even when we don't hear an answer from him or the answer that we want to hear, he's compassionate. And yet his compassion is uh, not powerless. That's the beauty of it. He's not just saying, they're there. He's saying, they're there. Watch me do something about it. And then he, um, he breaks through and he conquers death. And he, um, by his own death, is going to defeat death once and for all and to bring about the forgiveness of sin so that there will be no more death. Um, so Jesus is our champion. 
He's not just there, there with us. He is then going to get angry and, um, and fight on our behalf against sin and death and the devil. Any questions before we read? That's just something very comforting. Yeah. I take great comfort from it, too. And I think people sometimes stop with the he's compassionate and he's holding your hand and he's carrying you like those footprints across the sand. Yeah, he is. But at the last day, we will be raised from the dead. Death will be no more. And, and we see that already by the forgiveness of sins that's made manifest in our life through faith in Jesus and through repentance. There it is. Forgiveness. And then also in our life, we'll see little snippets. We don't always get to see as much as we want to see. And we don't always, we definitely don't get to control when we, when we see the healing and the forgiveness that we want to see. But there's healing and reconciliation and restoration in our relationships, in our hearts, in the world around us through faith of Jesus Christ as he is working out um, that forgiveness in our lives. And I think of sanctification, you know, which goes on for our whole life, which will end when we're raised from the dead as being kind of this forgiveness of sins that's just, filtering down to the deepest roots in our lives and in our world. And we don't always know um, which parts of us, which sins we haven't confessed. We don't know that. Thank goodness he doesn't reveal it all to us at once. But we spend the rest of our lives allowing that forgiveness that we receive once and for all to just filter down and apply to each part of our very being. Let's read. Let's start at verse 38, and we'll go through the end of the chapter to verse 57. We'll each take a couple of verses. Feel free to read or not read as you feel led. It's kind of like popcorn, so you want to wait and listen. If you hear someone else starting to read, you'll, um, we can figure out who will read, and then you'll get a chance in a moment. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said thus, he cried with a loud, loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with bandages, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we to do? Let him go on message. Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nations. But one of them, Caiaphas, 
said to them, I know everything you all. You do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people that we have the whole nation destroyed. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one of the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come for the feast? Now the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Hmm. Questions? I see a question. Yeah. I, I guess I've read this and read it and never really thought about it as much, but I'm amazed at Compass. Let me see. Isn't it incredible? We're going to talk about it in a minute, but it's astonishing. Yeah. What's so amazing about it, team? Well, he's prophesying that he's dying for the nation and uh, right. to gather into one the children of God who is scattered abroad. I know, I know. And his actual words, it looks as though his actual words and his prophecy is that um, Jesus should die on behalf of the nation so that the whole nation wouldn't be destroyed by Rome. Mm -hmm. So I'll unpack that a little bit. But then what John's saying is he's looking at that and he's saying Caiaphas spoke more truly than he knew because in fact, and here he's pointing to the theological significance, Caiaphas is thinking politically and in terms of the religious authority of um, the Sanhedrin and their relationship with Rome and you know all of that. And, and John is looking back, reflecting on this, and saying, do you know what? How ironic. He didn't even know what he was saying, but God was using him to prophesy at that moment. Because he, and, and so it is a form of irony that we know that he's speaking far more truly than he is aware, is aware of. So. Anything else that you're noticing when we read it? Anything? Um, did you notice how um, Jesus, remember that Jesus and Martha have this encounter in the verses that we read through last week, and that G it, Jesus is bringing Martha along. He's encouraging her faith. He's sort of saying, 
come on, come on, girl, believe in me. Believe that I'm, not, you know, not just in the resurrection at the last day, but resurrection right now, that, um, that the Lord of life is standing in front of you. And if you believe, there, you know, there is, there is that hope. Um, and she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She says that in verse 27. But what does she say then in verse 39? Does anybody see that? Does anybody want to read that again? Yes. Do you know when I was in France this summer, we had this amazing opportunity to be at this gorgeous old cathedral in this little town that no one's ever heard of called Auxerre. And we went in, we went for a late dinner because we got in late and we had one of those gorgeous French dinners that I can't even begin to describe because then you'll be too jealous. And we, but it, you know, they, they go late. So we were walking out of the restaurant at 1030 and this restaurant in this old medieval town was right at the steps of the cathedral. So we walk out of the restaurant, and we're just stunned. We stop, because there in front of us are the giant doors. I mean, literally right in front of us are the steps and the giant doors of the east, uh, west entrance. And um, the doors are wide open, which how many of you remember that if you go to these giant cathedrals and you're visiting during the day, they open the little side door. They don't open the big doors at the back of the nave. And the doors are wide open, and the lights are all on at 10.30 at night, and music is playing. And it was just the most stunning and amazing thing. And this cathedral was dedicated to Lazarus because they believed that they had the relics of Lazarus himself, this Lazarus. And that's a whole different story, whether they had them or not. But there were these, be- I won't even touch that today, but there were these beautiful statues there, gorgeous statues on the tympanum, which is the, you know, over the doors, and then right in between the doors there were these arresting statues, these Romanesque statues of Lazarus and Martha and Mary, and their eyes, they were in, they're the best condition I've ever seen, the best Romanesque statues I've ever seen in my life, and they were enormous. I could have just stood there forever. Um, But some of the older statues that they had in a museum, because they were around the reliquary, which was giant, almost as big as the cathedral itself. They had these other statues, and what I loved was that this ancient sculptor, you know, talking about 9th century, 10th century, he had depicted Martha with her cloak, you know, with a veil, as you know, medieval, medieval dress, and he depicted her with this cloth up to her nose. <laughs> right? Do you get it? Because no order, and I've heard that I think in the King James or in one of the older translations, it says, Lord, he stinketh. He stinketh. Why are you going to open the tomb? And she reveals her lack of faith. She believes that Jesus is the resurrection, or she believes that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, the Christ, the Son of God, but don't you dare open that tomb. <laughs> Which I just love that Jesus, remember, Jesus is not angry with her. It's just, yeah, we just wait till you see this, Martha. Just, yeah, yeah, we're just going to open it anyway, Martha, dear one. <laughs> there, there, it will be okay. And, it, you know, I think of that with our faith is always imperfect and flickering, and yet Jesus is patient with us, just like he's patient with Martha. And he goes on not just um, to be patient with Martha, but then when he prays, well, first of all, he says to her in verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And then he lifts up his eyes to heaven and he prays and he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. What is Jesus' prayer? Why is he praying and what is he praying for? 
He's praying for their faith because he sees that they still not, their faith is imperfect as is ours. But he's praying that they would have faith. And what is it that he wants them to believe? That's always the question. We, we, we always tout faith and yes, faith, faith, faith. We're Christians. We want faith. But what is he wanting them to believe? What exactly is he wanting them to believe? And that he is one with the Father. Let them believe that I am who I say I am. Let them believe that I come from you, Father, that you have sent me. And that language of Jesus being sent is all throughout John's Gospel. We looked at it a lot last year, didn't we? That Jesus is the one sent from the Father. And then, not only that, but that those who believe on him, believe in Jesus, entrust themselves to him, will find that they will be raised at the last day. Those who believe in him will have eternal life. Um, does anybody remember? Does everybody want to quote with me John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that all who believed in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Do you see how that relates to this right here? That um, Jesus is praying um, that there would be more than just that one resurrection the one raising of Lazarus that day, he's praying for um, every single person around him, surrounding him, that whole crowd. He wants that whole crowd to be raised from the dead, just like he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he wants them, he knows that they'll be raised from the dead only by putting their trust in him, by believing in him. And so he's praying not just for um, that, that the Father would answer his prayer and raise Lazarus through his word and his work, but he's praying, he's aiming higher. He's praying that all would believe in him. He wants many resurrections, and not just the resurrection of Lazarus. Um, any questions about that? There are so many points throughout Scripture where Jesus talks about the resurrection, or excuse me, where Jesus talks about faith and where John talks about faith. And one of them, I'm just going to put a list, a couple of them, for you um, on your own if you feel like looking at them. At the beginning... Um, we see some discussion of faith, of course, here, there, John 5, John 6, he's trying to get the crowd after he fed the 5,000 to believe in him, with the blind man, who now sees, he spurs him on to faith in him. And then finally, finally, at the end of the book, one of the most beautiful things we see is that John reveals his thesis statement for the whole gospel. Does anybody have John 20 um, that you can just flip to and read 20 verse 30 through 31 for us? Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Do you see that? The whole purpose of John's gospel is to bring about faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, the one through whom we have eternal life. Why does he say, oh, you of little faith? Mm. Ooh. Yeah, that's... Yes. Huh? 
Did he? Did he? I don't know that. I don't. No, I don't know that he did. I don't know that it's in John. Might be somewhere else. Does Jane know? Jane. Well, we talked about it two weeks ago when walking on the water. Yeah, there you go. That's right. Thank you. I was like, where's the context for that? I wasn't here that day. That's why I don't know. That's But don't you think there's some anger there? Um, it's so hard to read Jesus's emotions. Do you? You know, I think that. I think that the Lord, this is maybe just Deborah's fiction. I think that God the Father and Jesus, the, you know, the God, the triune God is grieved over human sin. And that that grief, and, that, and I see the anger and the wrath as being more consequential. Do you see what I mean? That, that in his heart he is deeply grieved um, over our disobedience. Um, and the wrath is almost like, um, again, not to be, it's not magic, but I think of that magnetic sense of God's holiness. And you see it in, um, you know, remember when David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and this poor man um, reaches out because the Ark is slipping and he's killed instantly. And so you see that all in that instance, David gets really upset at the Lord and the Lord's like, I'm holy. I can't help it. Almost. He doesn't say I can't help it, but he's like, I'm holy. This is why the rules are all there in the Pentateuch, in the Old Testament, is to protect the people of God from God's, to protect sinful people from God's holiness. Because it's dangerous for sinful people to be in the presence of a holy God. Because they'll be consumed. Remember with Moses on the mountain, the Lord says, don't let them get near the mountain. Is that angry or is it protective of his children? knowing that if they try to get too near in their sinfulness, they'll be consumed. Um, it's, well, that's probably why they've learned not to say his name. I know. I think, I think that's probably part of it, too. Um, and yet we see that through that, through Jesus, God is then bridging that gap so that sinners are now forgiven, and we can, by Jesus' own righteousness, stand in the presence of a holy God and worship him without fear, without that fear of being consumed. We now still have that reverence and that awe for his holiness and for his love and mercy, which is beyond our understanding and our comprehension. Just the, the anger and the wrath. Yeah, well, no, you're right. I mean, there is that wrath. I, I see it as, yeah, I see it as more consequential. It's sort of this reaction that is a reaction to human sin rather than... A, um, I mean, I think part of it is because how many of us had parents who had an unholy wrath at us, their children? How many of us have experienced that when, um, and how many of us have experienced that as parents when your child disobeys and you think, oh my gosh. I remember my mother praying in the middle of the car and just praying, oh Lord, help me not to hurt these children because she was so frustrated with us and we were like, okay, guess she's really mad this time. <laughs> and that, that part of that was her own sinfulness her own lack of patience and forbearance. And yet, part of, part of it is because we really broke the law and disobeyed her, but part of it is her own sinfulness and her, her own unholy anger. And so I think for us, you know, when we're trying to understand God's anger and his wrath, it's holy. It's not marked by that um, petty frustration that is about, um, that is painful for us to bear. It's, does that make sense? I'm just sort of going on and on, but I think, about that anger, there's, that's a whole different class that we could just talk about. What is God's holy wrath like? And um, Especially as we've experienced so much unholy wrath in our lives in relationship with sinful human beings. Is that? Okay. 
Um, so faith is really important in John's gospel. The whole thing is written that some might believe. And what we're going to see in John's, um, well, first of all, also, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Before we get on to the Greek chorus, and I know you're looking at the clock and saying, Deborah, you've got T minus five minutes. But um, when you look at John chapter five, and this is not on your um, outline, so please forgive me. But when we turn to John chapter five, verse 28 and 29, does someone want to read that for us, please? Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Yeah. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Doesn't that echo what happens with Lazarus? Is it possible? And I think it's very possible. I actually think this is actually what's going on in John chapter 11. Jesus is showing us what's going to happen at the last day. At the last day, he will call out. And all who know his voice will be raised to the resurrection of life. We see this in John chapter 10. He talks about um, how he's the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, they will listen to my voice. They know my voice. Um, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. The flock, Jesus' flock, hear his voice and we know it and we follow him. And um, there's this, also this, I just had a... Um, major life event this week. It's not really, but it, it feels major because my 10th niece was born. My, she's my fifth niece. I have five nephews and five nieces. And my sweet sister-in-law had her baby on, um, on the 1st of October, on Tuesday. And this sweet little girl was born with uh, nine pounds, the sweet big girl, nine pounds and six ounces and 20 and a half inches. Her name is Violet, and she's got strawberry blonde hair and big meaty arms. Right. We won't tell her that in 20 years, that she had meaty arms as a baby. And it, it just I just was struck by remembering the births that I've been at of my sisters and my sister-in-law. That, that um, I remember that those infants, as they were born, there's this transition from being in the womb to being out of the womb. And, uh, you know, you think about the difference between being in the womb. You're comfortable. You're cu it's cushy. You have on-supply. Uh, you have on-demand food at your... You have, like, an intravenous supply of food. It's dark. It's loud. But um, you still have this relationship. You have this relationship with your mother in particular, but also with your father. And they say, there are studies that say that in the womb, infants can hear their mother's voice. Did you know that? I just thought that with all the loudness of the organs around it surrounding the womb, the infant can hear the mother's voice even in the womb. And haven't you all seen how once there's that newborn baby infant screaming and crying its head off because it's no longer in the warmth, it's no longer in the place that it knows, now it has to beg for its food, and it doesn't know when it's going to come, and then you hear the mom, yeah, feeding actually really helps, but also the mother's voice really soothes that infant, and you see that deep, unspoken connection. That is analogous to the connection between the sheep and the shepherd, that we, as um, a part of Jesus' flock, through faith in him, we recognize his voice, and we hear his voice during this life, 
and we recognize it, and we respond to it. We respond to his call of faith. And so what we see here is that Lazarus is responding to that voice that he knows so well, the voice of his friend and his Lord. And there, his dead, dead body, decomposing, wrapped up in those, um, those grave clothes, locked behind that stone. He, no one ever tells us how he gets out of the stone. But he hears Jesus' voice calling across that bridge between life and death. He hears the Lord of life, his Lord, his master, his friend who loves him, calling him. And his body is remade. His body is renewed. The Lord of life calls, his word goes forth, and creation happens. We see that at the beginning in Genesis, that God's word goes forth and there is light. Behold. Well, here Jesus' word goes forth, and behold, there is life. And that is what will happen for us at the end of all time as we believe in him and put our trust in him. We will be in the grave we will hear his voice and we will be made new. We will be raised from the dead with new bodies. An imperishable body is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, So I I just hope we can take courage from that and um, find joy in that, even in the midst of the sorrows and the suffering and the death in this world that we experience so um, prominently. Any questions before we look at one more thing before we're done? Well, now now we're going to get to the council. We see a kind of Greek chorus throughout this whole chapter where there are these, um, these mourners that come to Mary and Martha's house. They are there. They go out with Mary when she falls at Jesus' feet. And we see that they are, does anybody remember the function of the Greek chorus in Greek drama? Or maybe you might not even know it, but it's the kind of thing that as a theater fanatic I've learned. The Greek chorus and all those ancient Greek dramas and then Shakespeare uses the chorus as well, acts as a kind of voice of the audience and kind of um, as a response. So that there on stage you see someone responding to the action and commenting often on the action, but their response to the action then provides Um, opens the door for the audience's response to the action. And in some ways, these, you know, people who were really there at the tomb, what um, John is doing is he's helping us to see that there are two responses to what Jesus has done. You either believe or you think he's crazy. And I can't help but think of C.S. Lewis's um, discussion about Jesus, that Jesus is either one, who he said he is, the son of God, or two, he's a liar, or three, he's a madman. There are not that many options. He's not a good teacher long ago who died. He's either the Lord, he's either a madman, or he's a liar. And here you see that people respond in that way. Some, they're divided in their response. Some believe in him. And then what happens, and I'm in verse 45 right now, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them, here's the other group, Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then how does the council react? Well, what is the council? The council is the Sanhedrin. There are 70 of them, and they are meant to be the the, um, inheritors of 
that anointing that was upon Moses. We see Moses gave his anointing out to 70 other people, and the Lord anointed 70 men from the people of Israel to make decisions on behalf of the people, to judge and to rule. And here, these 70 men are actually under the authority of Rome because Rome is still um, the empire that has conquered Israel. And what, they, what do they say except that their own positions as leaders within Israel are in jeopardy? Why would they be in jeopardy? Anybody have any ideas about why their role is in jeopardy? Well, Jesus is getting very popular. And what happened throughout the first century is that there were individual, there were small little revolts against Rome because Israel really believed that um, until they were free of Roman power, um, they were not living the life that God meant for them. In fact, until they were free, they were under God's judgment. And so they desperately wanted to be free from any Roman power. They wanted to go back to the good old days of David and Solomon when all the other nations around them came and um, brought tribute to them. And so you see that um, they believe that through the Messiah this would happen. And so Jesus, by um, being made known as the Messiah, and he is the Messiah, but a different kind of Messiah than what they were hoping for, um, the danger is that as he grows popular, then the people are going to revolt. And the fear of this council is that if the people revolt, then Rome will come in, Rome will destroy the temple, just the way the Greeks destroyed the temple hundreds of years before that, and they will take the authority out of the hands of those 70 leaders, and they'll give it to someone else. They will destroy our place, which is the temple, and our nation. They are afraid, and so that it's out of that fear that Caiaphas prophesies unwittingly and brings about that decision that will result in Jesus' death. Lazarus's resurrection is the straw that breaks the camel's back as far as they're concerned. And so there we see that Jesus' own rising from the dead, or Lazarus's rising from the dead is in fact the fall of Jesus. That's um, the straw that breaks the camel's back and it fulfills Jesus' own words about himself in John chapter 12, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So we see that Jesus is willing to bring about that resurrection from the dead of all those who believe in him and hear his voice. And he's willing to do it by going to death himself. The Lord of life gives up his life on behalf of those in the grave. And so for that we can say thanks be to God. Let's pray and then you can ask me some questions. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being not only the Lord of life and ruler over all, but also for being our good shepherd, the one who humbles himself to provide even for um, our deepest and darkest needs, our need to be forgiven from our sin, uh, our need to be healed and restored, our need to be raised from the dead. We need you, Lord Jesus, and we give you thanks for your humility, your willingness to go to the cross on our behalf so that we, like Lazarus, might be raised from the dead on the last day. Give us ears to hear your voice, Lord Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.